A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Podcast. Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? I am here in your kitchen, in the Sporkful Test Kitchen. Welcome. So we're old friends. We've collaborated back when you were at Planet Money, and you're more like business tech economics reporter guy, and I'm more nerdy food guy. Yes, and we found a story that is the crossover podcast event of 2023, right? <laughs> and the story is this. So we'll go with that. We'll sure. Go with that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And I'm coming to you from my kitchen with my friend Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? The show where entrepreneurs and engineers talk about how they're going to. Say, uh, change the world. The show where entrepreneurs and engineers talk about how they're going to change the world once they solve a few problems. You got to work on memorizing your own tagline, yeah, Jacob. I'm kind of anti-tagline at this point. Like, people know what the show is. They push play. Yes, yes. Today, Jacob, we're going to talk about the past, present, and future of alternatives to meat. Meat from animals is clearly a problem in the world right now, right? It's a, a huge driver of climate change, a huge driver of land loss, of biodiversity decline. And so this is a real high stakes problem in the world. And people are spending billions of dollars to try and come up with new technologies to give us meat without animals. And I know a lot has been said about this, but I really feel like we have interesting new big stuff to say here. That's right. Things have changed in the past year. Some of the things that looked very promising are struggling. Some of the things that felt like pipe dreams are becoming more real. So we're going to get into all of that. The moment that sort of sets the stage for our story, really, hippies essentially, right? Hippie vegetarianism. Right. And there is this chef who is who is kind of hippie adjacent. His name's Paul Winner. And in the 70s, he has this restaurant in Portland, Oregon. It's called The Garden House. And he wants to figure out what to do with his leftover food at the end of the day. And, you know, he's got rice pilaf. He's got just sort of random veggies. And he tries a few things. And he comes up with basically making it into a patty and cooking it and putting it between two buns. And he calls it the garden burger. This garden burger that he invents in his restaurant becomes the garden burger that was the go-to veggie burger in the 80s and definitely in the 90s. But it wasn't a high-end thing. It was almost the kind of thing where, like, when a bowling alley wanted to offer something vegetarian, they would have the garden burger, you know, or a chain restaurant or, like, a one level above a diner-type place. Yeah, and you could also buy it at the store. And you can't get the garden burger anymore. That Just last year, actually, it got phased out. Uh, but I think you got sort of the closest thing, right? That's right. Let me step over here to my freezer. And I have... Morningstar Farms Garden Veggie Burgers. Frozen. Let's cook one up while we're talking about it, yeah? Let's do it. So let's just say, before we even put it in, the veggie burger starts out brown. It looks to me, actually, it looks kind of like a, like a hash brown. It's got a, That's it's got right. a, a brownish, almost like 
pureed potato type vibe. Unlike meat, right? <laughs> like it's not it's not really supposed to be like meat, right? It's supposed to be a thing you can eat between a bun when your friends are eating meat. So so now we're going to put the veggie burger into the pan. Let's see what kind of sound it makes. Oh, there's a little bit of sizzle, but not much. Yeah, I, I think I think the sizzle is just like because it's maybe a little icy from the freezer. So so what happens to Paul Winter and his restaurant in Portland? In the 80s, he winds up closing the restaurant, uh, but the Garden Burger turns into this product. He turns the Garden Burger into this thing you can buy at the grocery store that restaurants buy to have a sort of token option for vegetarians. You know, it fills a need. In the 90s, if you want to get something for vegetarians at the barbecue, you pick up a pack of Garden Burgers. It's the go-to veggie burger of the era. Right. It's functional. That's a great word for it. And that's why Garden Burger gets so big. It's doing a job in society. And this company blew up. It did great. Garden Burger is sprouting up everywhere. The stars eat them. The president may eat them. And millions more are joining in. Tonight, meet the main man of Meatless. Millions and millions of Garden Burgers in 13 countries. And it still amazes me. Uh, I used to know everybody that ate Garden Burgers. So... <laughs> <laughs> In the 90s, the Garden Burger's a big deal. The company actually has an IPO. It goes public. They sell stock. This chef who ran a vegetarian restaurant in Portland is like a multimillionaire from it. His home, an extraordinary collection of Art Deco treasures that he shows off with the enthusiasm of a child. And maybe peak Garden Burger comes in the late 90s. Uh, it's huge. The stock is doing well. Uh, they advertise on the Seinfeld finale. Wow. Which is like, you don't get more 90s than that. That's like Super Bowl ad level. Yeah. Oh, no. Edna wants something tasty and healthy. Yum. Garden Burger. The burger with no meat. Edna squeals with delight. So they were big time. They had Samuel L. Jackson narrating their kind of strange Seinfeld ad. Yeah. So the instructions say that we should... Um, heat burgers over medium for seven to eight minutes, turning burgers over frequently throughout heating time. So I got my spatula ready. I'm going to turn the burgers periodically. And while we hang out here and cook, Jacob, why don't you continue your story? So now it's the 2000s, and the Garden Burger isn't the only mediocre veggie burger game in town anymore. <laughs> There's enough competition that you can't just get by on being the one anymore. And Garden Burger eventually goes bankrupt in 2005. And if I remember correctly, Kellogg's purchased Garden Burger and they kept selling these patties for years. Like they just discontinued them last year. But Kellogg's also owns Morningstar, which is the company that makes this Garden Burger adjacent patty that we have in the skillet right now. And it looks like it's done, actually. Should we, should yeah, we eat it? Yeah, we have ketchup, we have mustard, and then I have my uh, burger sauce, which is basically Shake Shack sauce. I'm in your hands. All right, let's do the Shack sauce then. You know, uh, they don't they don't give out the recipe for the shack sauce, but I don't know if you know the recipe developer Kenji Lopez all Jacob, but he um You will not mistake it for a hamburger. <laughs> no. And just kind of like mushy. That being said, eating this does take me back. It's got a little more of a more of a pepper taste than I remember, but just that sort of that texture, that kind of crispy edges and mushy interior. It still scratches a nostalgia itch for me, I gotta say. Not for me. I'd rather like eat Cheetos or something if I want nostalgia food. 
Garden Burger and the similar burgers, they are Veggie Burger 1.0, the sort of basic puck you can eat like a burger if you don't eat meat. And so around 2010, we get the start of this really different new era in veggie burgers. You know, the old one was hippies, vegetarians, natural. The new one is Silicon Valley, high tech, like engineered in a lab. And there are two companies in particular that get founded in Silicon Valley. You know what they are, say the names. Uh, I'm gonna go with Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Very good. And I have to say, I have been a big customer of these companies. My wife doesn't eat meat. My daughter doesn't eat meat. And our definite preference in our house is for impossible. And I can say, having tried both, I agree that I like the impossible better. So partly because of that, I talked with Pat Brown, uh, the founder of Impossible. He does not come from a food background. He was not a chef. He was a Stanford biochemist who spent his career studying the genome. And then... One day, as one does, Pat Brown thinks to himself, let me think about what are the biggest problems in the world that I might work on. And he decides not to start a podcast, but rather (laughs) he he decides that the biggest problems in the world are climate change and the decline in biodiversity. And he decides that the way to fight those for him personally is to start a company that can make fake meat that's as good as real meat without using animals. And so his goal in starting this company, in starting Impossible, is to entirely replace real meat with fake meat. This industry is supported by people who love meat, okay? And for us to compete them out of existence, we have to give them exactly what they want and do it better than the animal. I love vegetarians and vegans as much as the next guy, but we don't accomplish anything by making better meat for vegans. And that's that's a completely different project. And and it requires technology and science, right? So he's thinking about meat as a scientist. And in particular, he thinks about all the amazing things that happen when you cook meat. One of the um, striking characteristics of, of meat in general is that it, it behaves like an active chemical system. It starts out with one flavor profile, which is relatively not very strong, mostly bloody kind of And when you cook it in a matter of minutes, it completely transforms. And in the process, it produces this explosion of aromas that weren't there at the beginning. That's why a barbecue smells so good, right? Exactly, exactly. And and you'll notice that you you don't get any similar behavior if you barbecue broccoli. You also don't get similar behavior when you cook a garden burger. Right. Right? It doesn't transform. It looks at the end basically like it looks at the beginning. Right. And so... Uh, Pat Brown knows that he needs to capture that magic transformation that happens when you cook meat. And Pashman, I know you bought a couple of Impossible Burgers also for us. Maybe we should start cooking those here. Yeah, let's do it. All right, you want to crack these open, Jacob? Yeah. We've got two Impossible Burgers here. And just to, to compare them to the Garden Burger, right? Like, the Garden Burger looked brown, like a piece of bread, these look red with little flecks of white, like ground beef. And it was also interesting to me, you know, these are all the little details. The garden veggie burger, you keep it in the freezer. The instructions say, keep frozen until cooking. The Impossible Burger label says, treat this just like meat. If you're going to cook it, defrost it first. In practice, if the end result is good, in theory, it shouldn't really make a difference how it starts. But it made me feel like, oh, 
treat it like meat. It made it feel that much more like meat to me. That's a real sizzle. And, and you can see that the bottom of the burger, the part touching the pan, is browning and changing color as it would for any normal burger. Right, so, it's, so it goes in red burger color. Uh, and yeah, it, it looks not exactly like a burger, but a lot like a burger. So just to go back to, to the story of Pat Brown, he wants to capture that, that incredible smell and color and texture change that you get when you cook meat. And he thinks about this molecule called heme, right? Heme is a naturally occurring molecule. There's a ton of it in meat. We also have it, right? You may have heard of hemoglobin in our blood. That's heme. A hematologist is a blood doctor. Very good. Heme is in all animals. It's a big part of what makes meat taste like meat. So Pat Brown's got to find a way to get heme into his burgers without animals. There's a version of heme in soy, right? Soy leg hemoglobin. It's a version of heme that occurs naturally in the roots of soybeans. Uh, it's very molecularly similar to the way uh, heme occurs in meat. They decide to genetically engineer yeast cells to produce soy leg hemoglobin. So, so this genetically engineered version of soy leg hemoglobin works and it becomes essentially the secret sauce in impossible meat. Should I prep these up? Yeah, let's, uh, let's eat. I'm gonna warm the buns. So you cut it in half for us to split. And it is, what do you call this, medium rare. Basically. I would say medium There's rare. There's a little line of pink yes, in the middle. that's right. Okay, let's eat it. The fact that this thing reacts like meat from the second you take it out of the fridge, and that you can cook it medium rare, and that it's even reminiscent of a burger is pretty amazing. That being said, you still wouldn't fool me in a taste test. And can you, as a professional describer of food, like talk about why you still like the burger better? So the things that this does have, it, it has a little bit of a crispy edge, like you get on a good burger. It has, the, it has the texture down very well. It has a meatiness, but it's still a tenderness, like you would get with a good burger. It's still missing that hardcore beef yeah. note. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a band without a bass player. I like it. So not bad, but, the, but you kind of miss something. You miss it, something that's important. Like an oomph. There's like a deep guttural oomph yeah. that isn't quite there. So, so let's go back to the story sort of on that note. So Pat Brown is making the Impossible Burger. The people at Beyond are making the Beyond Burger. And they come out in the teens, in the 2000 teens, and then their big moment, the real sort of rocket ship blast off, turns out to be the pandemic. It turns out to be 2020. Um, I talked about this with Laura Riley. She covers the business of food for The Washington Post. A lot of us, you know, let's say March of 2020 through the end of that year, a lot of us had a lot of time on our hands. Uh, we were panic eating frequently and we were looking for new things to do. So a lot of us at least dabbled in the, in the whole kind of alt meat space. Also, the Impossible Whopper, the Impossible Burger, comes out at Burger King just before the pandemic in 2019. And during the pandemic, that wound up being big for my family. Obviously, we weren't going out to restaurants, but drive throughs were still open. Um, not everybody in my family eats meat. And I have to say, that is my favorite version of the Impossible Burger, is the Impossible Whopper. It was pretty successful. I mean, it wasn't a smash, 
But what every fast food restaurant wants to do, and they've tried all different things over the years, salads, et cetera, they want to remove veto power. So you have a family of four, and mom says, I don't feel like a burger. So, you know, that's what you're always trying to do. You want to have enough menu items that you can appeal, you can find something for that person who would veto it. You know, what's interesting about that is that's actually the same motivation as the garden burger. We have one person who we can't please with the regular menu. So we're going to have this thing in the freezer. And it is also not the dream of Pat Brown at Impossible Foods, not the dream of Beyond, right? right? right. It's, again, not quite there yet. But it's good enough, right, that in 2020, it's new. That is like the big boom for fake meat. Both, you know, the Impossible Whopper, people are, are buying at grocery stores. Everything's great. It feels like we're in this new era of fake meat. Until we get to 2022, which is when everything changes. Just last year is when really the, the kind of air starts coming out of the fake meat bubble. And you see this in a lot of different ways. One place you see it is the most important fast food restaurant, McDonald's, which in early 2022 comes out with its McPlant burger, which is a, a collaboration with Beyond. They were massively late to the game. And they debuted it in the San Francisco Bay Area, the, the McPlant and also in Dallas-Fort Worth. So they roll out the McPlant in early uh, 2022, and what happens? Um, it bombs. And they basically, they cancel the McPlant. So, okay, so, so the failure of the McPlant, that's like piece of bad news number one in 2022 for this new era of fake meat. But there's more bad news. One thing that happens is just the growth really stops, right? This sector had been growing, growing, growing at the beginning of the pandemic, and now... It's not growing anymore, essentially. One theory of why that happened is that people tried it. It was a novelty. And like, kind of like you, it sounds like. They were like, yeah, it's pretty good. I would eat it. But I don't like it enough to like keep buying it. Uh, but I actually think the most important thing that hurt fake meat last year was inflation. Food inflation was particularly high. And fake meat crucially, big problem they haven't solved yet. Not only is it not quite as good as real meat, it's way more expensive. And people are feeling acutely higher prices at the grocery store. It's like, no, I'm not going to pay more for this thing that's not quite as good. Laura Riley, the Washington Post reporter, she says, we do need another sort of technological leap forward. In the same way that there was a leap from the Garden Burger to the Impossible Burger, we need the next one of those. We need the next technological leap. What's been launched so far is mostly patties or nuggets. What we need next in order to kind of grow the category is we need things that are really thought of more as ingredients. You know what I mean? Like that I'm making, I'm having friends over tonight and two of them are, are veg. So I'm going to make a stir fry with this plant-based sliced chicken. The boneless, skinless chicken breast is beloved by home cooks. We need to get to whole pieces of meat. Yeah, exactly. We need meat. Well, coming up, Jacob, we're going to hear about people growing meat right now. And we'll hear from my friend Sean Ramos Farm, who went out to California and tasted lab-grown meat. Can't believe Sean scooped you on cultured meat. I know. Well, he was willing to go to California. <laughs> He's still got that edge. Yeah. The, the no kids edge. Yeah. <laughs> A delicious word from our sponsors. 
Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details. And you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas. You can taste the tahini. You can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And if you missed last week's show, you missed a big one. I announced that I've teamed up with Spolini once again, and we have produced two new pasta shapes that are on sale right now. For these two shapes, I went deep into the pasta shape archives, looking for obscure shapes that I wanted to share with the world. But before I could do that, I had to convince some of my toughest critics, my family. All right, first ever taste of this new pasta shape quattrotini. It's perfect in all three categories. Like, no offense to Cascatelli, but... I love it. I, I just hope it doesn't take away from Cascatelli sales. Because, I mean, does it, you think it has, it has all three, right? 
Breakability, sauceability, juicingability. There's, there's room in the world for more than one great pasta shape. Listen to last week's episode to hear the story of these shapes and buy them now only through Sfolini's website. That's also where you'll see a link to buy these new Cascatelli Clutch Purses, limited edition by a designer named Julie Malo. They're really cool, and they're just for Valentine's Day. There's only a couple of hundred of them. You can get all these things at Sfolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. All right, I'm back in my kitchen with my friend and collaborator for this episode, Jacob Goldstein, host of the podcast, What's Your Problem? And we're talking about the past, present, and future of alternatives to meat. Now, for the next and final stop on our journey, Jacob, I've been looking into cultured meat. Okay, this is where you take cells from a real animal, you take them into a lab, and you grow meat using those cells. So in theory, if it works, it will be real meat, but you won't have raised or killed an animal to get it. Now, the underlying technology here is not so new, okay? The idea of like growing cells in a lab has been around for many decades. I mean, this is how they made the polio vaccine. What's new is using this technology to create something you might eat, okay? <laughs> now, the first success with this was when a Dutch professor made a lab-grown burger. That was in 2013, okay? Ten years ago, okay. So right. ten years out in this new kind of era. Now, just in the last few months, it's gotten a lot more real, especially here in the U.S., because in November, the FDA declared cultured chicken from one company, Upside Foods, to be safe for human consumption. That's a major milestone. Now, it's still not going to be in stores quite yet. It's got to get past the USDA. And even when that happens, it's going to be, you know, expensive in just a few places. So it's still early days. But, I mean, we talked about this in The Sporkful a few years ago, and my impression then was like, this is space age stuff. So the fact that it could be coming to any kind of stores soon seems like a major development to me. I mean, I know sort of on the on the business tech side, there has been a ton of, of venture capital investment into fake meat, not just beyond and impossible, but to these kind of next generation cell culture fake meat. Although I would say, Jacob, I would not call it fake meat. It might not be a whole animal. But I think it's meat. And one company working on making cultured chicken and beef is called Eat Just. They already have a product in grocery stores you may have seen called Just Egg. It's a plant-based egg. And now they're getting into growing their own meat. To be clear, this is not the company that got the FDA approval, but they are one of the big players in this space. Their headquarters are in Alameda, California, just across the bridge from San Francisco. I wasn't able to visit, but my old friend Sean Ramos Farm, host of the excellent Daily News podcast today, explained he went there and saw it himself Here's how he describes the setup at Eat Just. There's all these tubes. There's very serious scientists hard at work. There's like big chambers and fridges and steel this and that and rows and rows of, of lab equipment. It looks like, you know, there's like a billion COVID tests going on at once with like little <laughs> droplets of this going into little droplets of that. I don't know that COVID test is the metaphor I want for my cultured meat. <laughs> I think he's saying, you know, there's that generic newsreel footage that yeah. we've seen on TV 10,000 times now. Anytime they talk about COVID and tests, you see those people in the coats with the droplets, it's, and that's what it looks science like. science so, so after all these droplets that Sean described, the cells go into a bioreactor that speeds up their growth. And the bioreactors, as they're described to me, they're like giant steel cylinders. They look like a brewery. You ever been to one of those restaurants? It's also a brewery. You see the big steel tanks? Sure. It's like that. So to find out what happens next in those bioreactors, I talked to a scientist who works there. So my name is uh, Vitor Santo. I am the senior director of cellular agriculture at Good Meat, uh, which is a subsidiary of Eat Just. So Vitor Santo trained as a tissue engineer. In past jobs, he worked on using cell cultures to regenerate human bone and cartilage. Huh. So he was in biotech and pharmaceuticals. Now he's growing meat. 
So once the cells are in the bioreactor, we feed them a, a solution, so it's in a liquid form, and it's a combination of different nutrients. So think of uh, proteins, amino acids, vitamins, uh, fats. Like miracle grow, but for meat. <laughs> Pretty much. Think of what you would feed, <laughs> what you would feed a chicken, like the solid right. feed of a chicken, but you just turn that into a into a, a culture broth. But when the cells come out of that bioreactor, they're not done yet. A lot of times, people expect you to see a full steak or a chicken breast coming out of the bioreactor, but that's not really what happens. What you see is more like, think of a, a slurry or a, a concentrate which doesn't have yet uh, a lot of structure. So not that they asked, but my tip to them would be stop using the word slurry to describe any part of your process. We don't want a slurry, we don't want a bioreactor. <laughs> right. like, basically, don't let a scientist talk yeah. to you. Just show me the chicken. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I don't want to eat meat that at any point was a slurry. No. But so, so they get the slurry, and they need to make it into a chicken breast. And to do that, they need to add what they call scaffolding, all right? This is plant protein extract that is formed into a 3D model of a piece of meat that the cells can then attach themselves to in order to get the shape and texture of a chicken breast. Now, I know it sounds very sci-fi, but Vitor says it's not as far out as you may think. And what we're doing in the bioreactors, to be honest, is just mimicking the natural process. We're just feeding, instead, let's say, of having cells growing in tissues and organs and having blood circulating through them in the, in the animal body, we're mimicking them, but inside of a stainless steel bioreactor with this mixture of nutrients. Now, as we've been saying, Jacob, the goal is to get whole cuts of meat, like a chicken breast, right? But they had to start with a simpler project, the chicken nugget. And Vitor still remembers the first time they made a chicken nugget that actually had the taste and texture of a chicken nugget. It was a turning point, I would say, at Eat Just. It was a little like touching the moon, <laughs> almost. In December of 2020, Singapore became the first country in the world to approve lab-grown chicken for sale. And Eat Just began selling their chicken nuggets in one fancy club in Singapore. And since then, now it's in other restaurants and places in Singapore. Now Eat Just is moving on to whole cuts of meat, like chicken breasts. Which seems like profoundly harder than a chicken nugget, right? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of throw anything into ground meat or a chicken nugget and you know, to, to mimic yeah. the quote-unquote. I mean, like, like what's real in an original chicken nugget? Who yeah. knows? yeah. But when you're talking about an actual chicken breast, there's so much about the eating experience that you might not even consciously know, but you're going to know if it's missing. I mean, that feels like a bigger leap. If we think of the leap from the Garden Burger to the Impossible Burger, like that's big. But going from a fake chicken nugget to a fake chicken breast, that feels like an even bigger leap. It's huge. You think about it like a chicken breast has those kind of, you ever pull apart a chicken breast, it has those sort of striations. Yeah, the sinews, right? You had to chop across them when exactly, you're cutting it. Exactly, yeah. right. And uh, like the idea of creating that in a- Out of a slurry. How are you gonna make a slurry into I, that? I mean, yeah. our friend Sean Ramos from, he, when he went there, he got to taste their chicken skin and their chicken breast. We started with an appetizer that looked something like, like a pork rind. It was like chicken skin on top of a, a sort of mix of vegetables. And, uh, you know, because it was crispy, it was sort of hard to tell. Like, like what the difference was. And so it was hard to be like, wait, is this chicken or is this is this not chicken? It, it tasted just like the real thing. What do they serve to you next? Next up was the piece de resistance, I suppose. It was another mix of vegetables over like a muscular, fatty, 
piece of chicken that felt like akin to a piece of chicken breast, but again, with with skin on it. And as much as I wanted to doubt, I was very impressed. It was, you know, it had the texture. It had the taste and it had the flavor of the genuine article. It was legit. So it sounds like you went in skeptical. Totally. And you were impressed. I was impressed with the product. Now, I remain skeptical that this is going to happen anytime soon. Jacob, what what Sean's alluding to is like, yeah, they made tremendous advances on the taste and the texture. What they're struggling with is the cost. Yeah. Okay. Right now, Vitor says it costs them about $50 to make one chicken nugget. (laughs) (laughs) Better be an amazing nugget. Yeah. So so, so they they got a little ways to go here before this is going to be a big product. In fairness, that's way cheaper than it was a few years ago. They're doing better, but they still have obviously a long way to go. They got to scale up. They got to get costs down. They need to find a way to grow more cells per batch faster and without spending so much to feed the cells. But it's a constant struggle, Vitor tells me, because if they push too much in that direction, the quality of the product can suffer. That has an impact on on the flavor of the cells. Maybe they don't taste as much as as chicken anymore, or they, or the flavor maybe is a little less powerful. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting, profound question, right? Like making things get cheaper and better, or at least equally good, is like a core technological problem in, in history, right? And, and maybe the most important thing in the world economy for the last 50, 60 years has been the way computing power has gotten better and cheaper, right? There's this famous thing, Moore's Law, that every two years, computers basically get twice as good. And that has been this huge driver of like everything in Silicon Valley, right? And this is very much a Silicon Valley universe. You have venture capitalists, this company is in the Bay Area, they're pouring money in. And what they want is a computer-like outcome, right? They want it to get twice as good, half the price constantly. And it's not obvious that just because it worked with computer chips, it'll work with cultured meat. It doesn't work in every domain, but I have to hope that it will, right? I have to hope that all this money will pay very clever people who are motivated, who will make cultured meat, meat without animals, that is at least as good as meat from animals and at least as cheap. I I think it's cool that they're trying and it's exciting to hear Sean say that they're as close as they are. And I'm excited for the day that, that we can really take this technology to the next level, Jacob, okay? Because Vitor says that once, once they get the template, they can make almost anything. As long as you have the equipment, the infrastructure, and, and the, the means, like the culture composition to feed those cells, you can essentially grow any type of meat. Any type of meat, Jacob, okay? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Human beings. No! <laughs> no, Jacob, Jurassic Park! This is this, like almost the same technology from that movie. Okay, they, they got the dinosaur DNA, they made dinosaurs. And in fact, there's a company in Belgium right now that says they're developing woolly mammoth burgers. You know, in, in foodie circles, there's all this talk about your burger blend. Like, oh, we do like, you know, 40% chuck, 20% short rib, 20% brisket or whatever. And every chef thinks they have the best blend or whatever. I cannot wait to go out to a restaurant and be like, I'll have the like half dodo bird, half stegosaurus burger, please. I'm in. If it, if it costs the same as a hamburger, <laughs> it'll work. Oh, come on, Jacob. You wouldn't pay an extra dollar for a stegosaurus I, I, burger? I'd pay an extra dollar. <laughs> Does it come with fries? 
Sure, I'll throw in the fries for free. I'm in. <laughs> I think the big question here with with the cultured meat is even if it does taste the same, will people eat it? It still feels weird. I hear what you're saying, but a couple things. First of all, think about all the stuff in the whatever freezer aisle of the grocery store. Like, look at the ingredient list on any whatever frozen pizza. It's insane. Nobody looks at it. I think basically most people don't care, right? And if you think about today, the way some people care a lot, you can imagine those kind of meat eaters. Some, you know, small percentage of people who will always want their meat. But I think if you have something that is indistinguishable from meat and the same price or even a little cheaper, let's dream big, I think people get the cheaper thing that's basically the same. I also think that these things may be somewhat generational. Yeah. You know, so like if you are, have you been eating cultured meat from the time that you were five, then it doesn't feel weird to you. I think that I would probably, I'm more excited about cultured meat than about the plant-based. I think they have a better chance of getting to, to the true, what I would call taste parity. It sounds like from what Sean said that they're already there in some respects. We agreed with the Impossible Burger, as impressed as we were, it's not quite there. And to me, like, I feel like I'm in the target audience for this because I'm not a vegetarian, but I care about the environment and animals. I try my best to buy meat that's been raised ethically. I don't always succeed, but I try. Um, so if you said to me, hey, here's a thing that would check all those boxes and it tastes the same and it's the same price, I would go for that. I think we agree. Fake meat, cultured meat, whatever you want to call it, meat without the animals, it's not there yet. But it really sounds like it's getting there. And if they can get the price down, I think that'll do it. And I, and I hope it happens. Pashman, this was great, man. Thank you for having me in uh, in the Sporkful Test Kitchen with you. It's my pleasure. Anytime. And let's tell folks real quick. So your podcast, Jacob Goldstein, is called What's Your Problem? And actually, we've been doing a, a few food shows now. We did a whole interview with Pat Brown, the impossible food guy, who you heard a little bit from in this show. We have a whole interview with him. Uh, we did another show recently about this app, Slice, that's trying to help mom and pop pizza shops compete with Domino's. So uh, lots of food content, as well as other kind of business and tech stuff. Jacob, thanks for coming to the Sporkful Test Kitchen, a.k.a. My Kitchen. Thanks for having me. This show is produced by me along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. With help this week from What's Your Problem host... Jacob Goldstein. And producer... Edith Rousselot. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Stephanie in Cincinnati, Ohio, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.